living in Santa Fe, you're a different human being in a certain sense than you are living in New York. But you can go one step further and realize something interesting, that if you separated, New York is about 15 million people. If you took that 15 million people and you treated each one as an independent sort of guru and you put them on top of the mountain to contemplate the universe, you could ask how many patents were the 15 million people each one independently not interacting with anybody else produced? Of course, the answer is zero, produced none. There's no socioeconomic interaction. So none of the great things happen. It happens importantly because of interactions, bringing people together. And the more people that you bring together, the more socioeconomic output you have, both good, bad, and ugly. It turned out that it's not just the growth of us as a biological object. It's us plus all our infrastructure that's the energy use that drives us and that gets this hyper-exponential scaling curve about energy use. And so we divided the, the core of the representation, parts between maintenance and growth, but not about just the biological individual, but also that extended individual, sort of that means you plus your contribution to the technosphere. If I look at you here, there are a lot of technosphere objects in the background that all <laughs> took energy to make and that are part of your extended self in that sense. So that became the essence. And so in that sense, it became extremely logical to say that in, in, the, in our human evolution, we cannot just look at it as an individual species. We can't even look at any animal or plant just as an individual species because all of them have to be contemplated within their connectivity and within their constructed natures and with us, that's the technosphere. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 212 of the podcast that explores our place in time. For those of you who enjoy the deep time perspective as much as I do, you know that this time, broadly speaking, is the so-called Anthropocene, the geological age defined by humanity's impact in the record of the rocks of our planet. But the funny thing about the Anthropocene, as any longtime listener of this show can attest, is that the impact of human activity is actually determined by and made by greater than human forces. And the fossils we leave behind are traces of our technological activity on the surface of this planet, shaped by economic factors and driven by the self-organizing agencies of states, markets, corporations, and other institutions. Anyone who lives in a city can tell you that the city has its own needs and wants. Anyone who works in a company can tell you that the company has a mind of its own, a drive, and a metabolism. So we can call this the human age, but late historian William Irwin Thompson, whom I interviewed in episodes 42 and 43 of this show, would likely be quick to remind us of the sunset effect, how things flare before they vanish, a motif visible time and time again in the latest Netflix series, Life on Our Planet, which I highly recommend. Today, I talked to two of the scientists best disposed to ask questions about this condition. Physicist Jeffrey West and evolutionary biologist Manfred Laubichler, both of whom are professors at the Santa Fe Institute, where I used to work alongside Jeffrey. 
on a daily basis, delightfully. And both have more titles than I can possibly list here, so check the show notes to explore their profound and in-depth research. But before we dive into this conversation, I want to thank iDeary for signing up at the top tier of my Patreon support, and William Gill for his generous contribution, as well as for filming a five-camera shoot of the first concert with my new band. More details on that later, as well as noanotics.org, where I now sit as an advisory board member for their support of this program, and the Regen Network and Regen Foundation, who are doing vital, creative, and brilliant work to battle the worst case outcomes we discuss in this episode by making land and ocean stewardship profitable. This talk goes deep and gets dark, but do not give up. Do not lose hope. We are working on it, and you can work on it with us. Hi, Michael. Gentlemen, here we are, and we are sitting squarely in the Anthropocene. Manfred, I've been less familiar with your work historically, so I've been binging videos and works of popular (laughs) writing and a couple academic papers of yours and just getting a sense the curriculum that you taught with Jürgen several years ago and just getting a sense for how deep your work in this area has really goes. I would like to start this conversation by giving you and then Jeffrey giving you the opportunity to provide whatever kind of background on you as a person in your life you feel. I can't assume that anyone listening to this listened to our conversations on complexity podcast, Jeffrey. So I'm going to try and move from a position of naivete about some of this stuff, but yeah, knowing nothing about your audience, who are you and what, what forces animated you to become a researcher pursuing the kind of questions that you're pursuing together and a lot and separately? Yeah, that's a complicated question or a complex (laughs) question. As I mean, my background is in evolutionary theory, and there is a long history how I got there that might not be completely relevant at this point. But in the context of evolutionary theory, we were always interested in major transitions or real evolutionary innovations. So my dear friend Eric Davidson, late Eric Davidson, I always used to say, I don't care about petunia fancies, how you get a different color on a plant. I care about how we get a new body plan in evolution. And so that was the sort of space within which I grew up with in evolutionary theory and did some of the early mathematical models trying to, with very limited data decades ago, trying to get some more complex systems thinking into population genetics and then realizing that this avenue will lead to, I think, very soon either alcoholism or mental breakdown because population genetics is the wrong approach to understand those questions. And so then I did a little detour by continuing to do evolutionary theory. I also moved into history and history of science because I was interested in the evolution of systems more generally, and that was body plans all the way to knowledge systems. And once you are in that space, then you realize, first of all, that it's all interconnected and you end up at SFI, but then also that there are deeper historical movements that we need to understand about the time we live in and the transition that got us to where we are. And 
that's why I were very early on, I was part of this discussion crowd that sort of investigated the Anthropocene from various points of view. And mine was always looking at the Anthropocene as a result of a coevolutionary dynamics between different elements of the system. And so that then got us to what we did to amuse ourselves during the pandemic. And that was basically the Anthropocene equation and the Anthropocene engine. And I guess that's what we are talking about today. But first, Jeffrey. Yes, thank you. First of all, delighted to be here and great that you're doing this podcast with us. Be intrigued to see where it ends up and how it goes. But I'm a physicist, a theoretical physicist, and I spent much, most of my career doing uh, classic high energy fundamental physics, meaning quarks and gluons and string theory and dark matter and all these wonderful questions. And was a sequence of accidents that got me interested in what I consider big questions in biology. I, I should say, as a background to that, I've always been interested beyond in, in questions beyond the fields I was working in. In fact, one of my frustrations in general in academia was that you always had to focus on something very specific, not only a specific field, not only a specific subfield, but some specific set of problems within that subfield. And so I always had this frustration. And But I got intrigued by the these extraordinary scaling laws in biology, which I came across just accidentally because I was teaching biophysics for, it used to be called physics for poets or physics for medical students, physics for biology students. And I was looking for examples in the biological area that sort of had a physics-y taste to them. And I came across these extraordinary scaling laws, namely that despite the image of natural selection, evolution, being arbitrary and capricious and producing anything you want, just depending on a bunch of historical accidents. Somehow, when you actually measure things and you measure measure physiology of animals and their life history and so on, all the various things you could possibly measure, amazingly, when you look how they change with size, they have this extraordinary systematic regular behavior. And not only that, the mathematics behind it is these sim- very simple power law scaling relations. And this intrigued me enormously. To cut a long story short, I started working on it and quickly realized that the one commonality that might be able to explain it, since it, by the way, it not only was across the entire biosphere, but was it was across the entire biosphere. It had it was across all these multiple variables. So it had a kind of universality to it. And the explanation I started working on was the idea that this was a reflection of the mathematics and physics of networks, namely the networks that supply energy and information across a highly complex system, such as an organism, which has an enormous number of, of, of customers, so to speak, that have to be serviced efficiently. That got me involved with the SFI, with the Santa Fe Institute, basically. And it, and it actually matured into a serious piece of work with collaborations with Jim Brown and Brian Inquist through the Santa Fe Institute. And that brought me into the orbit of SFI. And so to speak, in terms of my life, the rest is history because I unwittingly migrated from traditional physics into questions of biology 
And that led to questions in social systems because very easy to extrapolate conceptually that if you start to think of cities and organizations and so on, that they too have, at least metaphorically, much in common with organisms. And in fact, so that work took on a whole dynamic of itself. And I started collaborations looking at cities and discovered that they too satisfy similar meaning mathematically, scaling laws. But these scaling laws had a very interesting consequence as distinct from biology, because in biology, the bigger you are, generally the less per capita or less per cell of most things, and that's called sublinear scaling. But in these in cities, so these social systems, often for things that involved information exchange, the bigger you are, the more per capita, and that's called superlinear scaling. And to cut a long story short, that led to something quite fascinating, that if you asked how did the system grow, it grew faster than exponential, which was extraordinary. So it was great because that's what we see. So that was very satisfying. That was the good news about it. But the bad news was it gave rise to these so-called finite time singularities, which effectively meant through the theory the system is destined to collapse. That was within that context. Again, unwittingly, I began to realize that this is obviously what's going on in the entire planet. It's not just in a social organization or a city. It's the whole bloody planet is like this. And we should think about applying these ideas to the planet and that this faster than exponential growth, which is what we've seen for the last couple of hundred years, is inevitably leading to these so-called singularities, which means either you collapse or you make some major innovation and change in order to somehow avoid it. But that's what we're up against. And that's what I realized what the Anthropocene from this viewpoint was all about, except that in the way since I got into it through thinking about cities, I thought of it much more as the Urbanocene rather than the Anthropocene. But the Anthropocene is the word people use. But it's in fact this idea that the growth of the population expansion, the expansion of urbanization, is behind the Anthropocene and all the problems that we have. And indeed, one of the nice things about it is the very dynamic that has led to our enormous success during the Anthropocene, namely the kind of quality and standard of life we all participate in, we're privileged to participate in, is also the origin of all our problems. And if we don't address them, it's going to kill us. So that's where I came to and then came together with Manfred and Derek and Chris, we can talk about in a minute, to form this collaboration during COVID. And it's been quite exciting. Excellent. Manfred, this being the first time I've really had the opportunity to have an actual conversation with you at length, I just want to celebrate this common interest. We have major evolutionary transitions and this question of the the emergence of new le levels of individuality and new regulatory networks and how this is all related to the evolution of communication and of intelligence and of society. These are the things that got me into complexity science back in 2005 as an undergrad. And it's a criminal disappointment that took me so long to find your work. Looking back on it now, what I would love to, to pluck at with you both is how you've situated this 
within the extended evolutionary synthesis and like the way that that like I'll link in the show notes to your writing on the growth and differentiation of metabolism mm-hmm. in extended evolutionary dynamics in the technosphere, like the, the Anthropocene being something that, as Jeffrey pointed out, is defined by relationships between uh, humans and, and technologies, as well as non-human organisms. And yeah, this question of the externalization of regulation and regulatory states from organisms into the environment and then the internalization of regulatory processes through the way that they exert pressure on individual behavior or they they change the the functions or the the adaptive processes of organisms what i want to aim at is where both of you seem quite comfortable in this much broader more general thinking about adaptive system processes and nesting these thoughts about the biosphere in in a physical framework and in an informational framework and in yeah so i guess this is just the invitation to roll out the basic conceptual framework that you've formalized in your work and to talk a little bit about the anthropocene engine and, and niche construction and all of that stuff yeah, so let's continue what Jeffrey started. There's a there's an interesting intellectual history. If you think about the foundation of the Santa Fe Institute, one of the foundational ideas by Anderson, you know, that more is different. And what that basically means is that once you are in that sphere of complex systems, and so let's take living system as the prime example here, that you cannot simply extrapolate some highly abstracted rules and believe that will give you an explanation. So there needs to be a different set of principles. And so that was a deep theoretical insight, and that was very difficult to realize what that actually means. And and Jeffers and others' work scaling provided one of the first ways of identifying what that different actually means as an explanatory principle. So we are basically there that there are emergent properties that govern those complex systems that are a consequence about the network of the network architecture that those systems have. There was an independent development that focused on the role of networks in understanding complex biological system that came about in trying to understand what genes actually do. And the answer is nothing by themselves, but only as part of highly complex regulatory network architectures can we basically understand how the genome as a highly multidimensional complex systems in interaction with other systems all the way to the environment builds an organism. And so the similar operating principle here where they're both governed by network structures. And so then the point was, if you then look at biological systems, so you have those intrinsic network architecture that you need to understand in order to understand how those complex phenotypes come about. Then you realize that the whole mathematical theory of population genetics, which is basically a Newtonian discipline in that sense, that it has simple particles and describes their dynamics through time, doesn't really cut it. And so you need to understand how those networks transform. And then you realize that you can't just look at the 
genome in isolation and say that gives you an explanation of phenotypes and organisms because those networks interact with their environment, they interact with their context. And that gives you, still in the same framework of more is different, another set of explanatory causal mechanisms, namely the feedback mechanisms between how the intrinsic organismal structures construct their environment and if the environment then persists through time, how those constructed structures provide feedback back into the way those complex regulatory systems operate. So this is where we arrived at that model of extended evolution that you alluded to, that interaction between intrinsic networks and extrinsic networks and the feedback relationships that originate as part of that dynamic. And this is what we call externalization and internalization. In a way, how we then got to study the Anthropocene. So you have Jeffrey's trajectory from metabolic scaling to the application into cities and, and social system, trying to identify those emergent network properties as the different that we need to understand. And us coming from understanding more traditional evolutionary theory, realizing that we are basically hit the same kind of conceptual framework. And then once we brought in more that feedback between the constructed niche and the intrinsic system, then we really got going and trying to apply that to culture and social dynamics and the interactions between the constructed environment or the technosphere the natural environment, the social environment, and what actually are the feedback mechanisms inside of that system that we need to understand that overarching dynamics that we call the Anthropocene. And the nice thing, as it turns out, from a scientific point of view, that with all the complexity, there is a very straightforward and simple, actually, mechanism that drives the whole thing. And that's what we then called the Anthropocene engine. And we got through that mechanism by looking at large, diverse data sets and applying those principles for scaling analysis that allow us to identify those different regularities. And then we found one, as they did in metabolic and urban scaling, that is actually relatively simple, but that has those dangerous consequences because the exponent in many of those systems is even larger than it is in urban scaling. That means the, the acceleration dynamic that Jeffrey was referring to is really coming into play in those Anthropocene systems. You want to stack on that, Jeffrey? Yes, no, you, you said it very well, Manfred. And yes, just add one or two points. I think one thing that is, I think is quite interesting in terms of conceptually for the moment is that just going back to basic ideas about complex systems is that it's it maybe a bit of a platitude but it's anti-reductionistic in its outlook because the traditional form of doing much of science and certainly physics and the background from which i emerge is that you have these elementary constituents whatever they are they could be quarks they could be atoms they could be or in social systems they could be people and the, the many-body system, the collective system, is built up from those constituents. And if you know the properties of the constituents and something about the way they interact, you can, in principle, as the idea, that you could determine something about the collective. So one of the things that comes out of this network stuff 
is that it's a simple example of what Munford was saying. It's neither, it's not exactly top down and it's not exactly bottom up. So, for example, the if metabolism, the metabolic rate scales as so called, just to use the technical phrase, as mass to the three quarters, which simply means Roughly speaking, if you double the size of an organism, double, doubling the metabolic rate, which you would naively expect from that sort of reductionistic view, you've doubled the number of cells, you would expect to double the metabolic rate. But in fact, you don't. You only increase it by three quarters, by about 75%. So you have this nice saving every time you double the size, about 25%. But that means that the fundamental constituents, in this case, the cells, even though, quote, they are the same, my liver cell at this level of granularity, my liver cell is the same as that of a mouse or a whale. In fact, they're behaving differently in, in, in those organisms. They're down-regulated in the whale because of this economy of scale, and they're, relative to me, up-regulated in the mouse. The mouse is much faster. And so the network is in fact interacting back on the constituent from which it was made. So there's this interesting interplay and it's crucial. And so it is with cities and indeed the planet. That is, for this superlinear scaling, this positive feedback in social networks that gives rise to superlinear behavior, namely the bigger you are, so to speak, the more socioeconomic activity per capita in a systematic way so that, for example, just to give you a simple example, New York is about 100 times bigger than, than Santa Fe. It's about 100 Santa Fe's in terms of population. But New York produces twice as many patents per, per annum than Santa Fe. It's much more inventive than Santa Fe. And so it is with all socioeconomic metrics. It's the number of crimes is also twice as much and so on per capita and so forth. So there's the, so the human being in Santa Fe, and it's obvious, it's a no-brainer in a way. Living in Santa Fe, you're a different human being in a certain sense than you are living in New York. But you can go one step further and realize something interesting that, you know, you can, if you separated the, New York is about 15 million people. If you took that 15 million people and you treated each one as an independent sort of guru, and you put them on top of the mountain to contemplate the universe, you could ask how many patents were the 15 million people top each one independently, not interacting with anybody else, produced? Of course, the answer is zero, produced none. There's no socioeconomic interact. So none of the great things happen. It, come and it happens importantly because of interactions bringing people together and the more people that you bring together the more socioeconomic living in santa fe you're a different human being in a certain sense than you are living in new york but you can go one step further and realize something interesting that if you separated new york is about 15 million people if you took that 15 million people and you treated each one as an independent sort of guru, and you put them on top of the mountain to contemplate the universe, you could ask how many patents were the 15 million people, each one independently not interacting with anybody else, produced? Of course, the answer is zero, produced none. There's no socioeconomic interaction. So none of the great things happen. It happens 
importantly, because of interactions, bringing people together. And the more people that you bring together, the more socioeconomic output you have, both good, bad, and ugly. And, and that's the thing that is, of course, led us to the place we are in the Anthropocene, including the threat of collapse, because that's the thing, as I, just to repeat what I said earlier, that's the thing that drives this faster than exponential growth. And just the last thing from just a riff on what Manfred said, the wonderful thing is you can write down the theory mathematically and make predictions about these things. And I think the thing that really stimulated this recent burst of work beginning, <laughs> as I says, as we said at the beginning of COVID, unfortunately, was that there was this lovely data set that was put together that by a man named Will Stefan, who died last year, Australian, who put together a data set on global metrics, all kinds of things, everything from the obvious to energy use, total energy use, to how much fish or maybe shrimp are being <laughs> harvested and so on. But anything he could get his hands on, he put together in this way and he drew these little graphs you see these big hockey sticks of their growth, their super exponential growth as predicted by this theory. But also, what he didn't take it any further. And one of the great things that we did, I think, exciting things, is that we translated these data into the scaling framework. And remarkably, these things scale in a very systematic way, and they confirm the theory, the predictions of the theory, in terms of we're headed towards singularity. It's, it's unequivocal. And so that's very exciting. And the question is to put more meat on this. I would like to sidestep here for just a moment and talk a little bit about the technosphere specifically, because you're talking about I'd like at this point that a human in Santa Fe is different than a human in New York. Cousin lives in Brooklyn, so I know what you mean. <laughs> Listening to your talks, Manfred, one particular talk that you gave on the Anthropocene campus about technosphere coevolution, presented with Jürgen Wren, you talk about something that, and then there's this other talk, actually, a talk on the technosphere on that Anthropocene curriculum. These two pieces, as I was looking at them, you ask a couple questions. I want to paraphrase your questions and I want to solicit your reflection seven years on and all the research that you've done since. And these are a lot of, like work that you did in anchoring all of this in metabolic processes. The 2019 piece that you wrote, citing Olivia Judson, who's had a conversation with very early on at SFI and her the way that she's thinking about major innovations in energy source identification and utilization, the age of flesh, the age of fire and chemical energy and so on. And how we now, we're, we're now at a point where we're utilizing all of these things. And so again, like there's a very deep layer here at which like one of the, one of the things that I'm constantly poking at on this show is this assumption that people grew up with that, that we are separate from our technologies in some way. And like everything that you just said about, you know, the, the evolutionary framework in which this is abstracted out to regulatory interactions suggests otherwise. What am I saying? I'm saying that one of the questions that I heard you bring up 
love to hear you address is this question of when the technosphere actually began, because you talk about the the production of oxygen in the atmosphere by cyanobacteria. There's this obvious kind of analogy with that and the anthropogenic climate change and atmospheric pollution. And it's it's not at all clear to me where there deserves to be a, like a hard line, a qualitative di- distinction being made between the quote unquote industrial processes of microbes and those of human beings, except for, as you've already indicated, that the, the scale of these processes makes them behave in a new emergent distinct fashions. So that's part of it. And then the other part is the question of the body of this post-human organism or whatever it is. You think of all of civilization, the body of that thing living inside it means that our behavioral repertoire, our, uh, our possibilities as humans are very different than the possibilities that we had as humans a thousand years ago, or maybe a thousand years from now, if we managed to live through this. But the sense that I get meditating on all of this stuff is that we actually have far less agency as these like rational modern individual actors than we thought we did maybe 300 years ago. And that I love in conversation with David Krakauer, for instance, his points about how modernity was could be defined as the age in which the aggregate knowledge increasingly outpaces individual understanding. What are we even capable of doing, do you think? Now, this is like a dauntingly large question. But so, yeah, where did the technosphere start? And then what agency do you think people individually or collectively really have in steering this sort of emergent telos or directionality in the evolutionary forces that generate new regulatory layers in the whatever we're calling this thing, the biosphere, technosphere, Anthropocene. I think this is this is a whole bunch of very interesting questions. So let's try to construct a narrative answer because I think that's what we need to have here, so that anybody can still follow what we are talking about here. <laughs> Thanks. So starting with with Olivia's reconstruction of the major energy transitions, that basically ties it right into the framework of major evolutionary transition, where something truly interesting happens that changes the dynamics. But one interesting lesson, if you look at that chart, and it looks great, so you have the anaerobic sort of chemical, geochemical energy, then you get oxygen into the mixture, then you can metabolize flesh in that sense, and then we start burning things. But they are not replacements. They are basically nested because none of the previous energy systems disappeared. And so what that also means to one of your many dimensions of the questions about how that creates more and more complex individuals in the sense that an aggregate becomes an integrated individual and we are composed, for instance, now of our cells, but we also are composed of 10 times more bacterial cells. So we are this aggregated system of complexity and each one of them different energy usages and the like. So it's a cumulative, but also integrative evolutionary process. And when you speed this up, and so you know, in our age where we burn things, in our human history, acquire different types of energy sources from keeping warm or 
extracting more energy out of our basically food that we have. It's a cumulative system. And in each of those steps, the boundaries of what we consider to be the individual shifts and becomes more aggregated and integrated in, as part of this coevolutionary framework. And that gets us then to the technosphere and to Jeffrey's statement that an individual in Santa Fe is different from an individual in New York, because we can't just look at the individual outside of their social and also material connectivity. The built environment in New York is different than the built environment in Santa Fe. That means the extended individual in Santa Fe, what we utilize in terms of the technosphere, the built environment, is distinct from New York, for instance. So that makes us different living in those different places because it's not just us, it's us plus everything surrounding us. And so that became a very important insight in getting to this Anthropocene equation and Anthropocene engine, because once we did the, the transformation of those stick graphs into scaling, that means we basically substituted time by population, which is what you do with scaling analysis. And then we had to figure out now what is that individual that actually drives the whole thing. And then doing the inspired by the work on metabolic scaling, writing down a growth equation, it turned out that it's not just the growth of us as a biological object, it's us plus all our infrastructure that's the energy use that drives us and that gets this hyper-exponential scaling curve about energy use. And so we divided the core of the representation parts between maintenance and growth, but not about just the biological individual, but also that extended individual, sort of that means you plus your contribution to the technosphere. And if I look at you here, there are a lot of technosphere objects in the background <laughs> that all took energy to make and that are part of your extended self in that sense. So that became the essence. And so in that sense, it became extremely logical to say that in our human evolution, we cannot just look at it as an individual species. We can't even look at any animal or plant just as an individual species, because all of them have to be contemplated within their connectivity and within their constructed natures and with us, that's the technosphere. So in that sense, the question of the origin of the technosphere, you can go all the way back. That was the argument that I made at that Berlin Anthropocene campus. But then at some point you, in that evolutionary history, you have major events that sort of introduce something qualitatively different. And so that's when we had this growth dynamic and we saw that, that there are generally the relationships between individuals and the environment has interesting feedback relationships. And in any ecosystem, there are positive and negative. Every species would exponentially grow if you let them. But then there are regulatory interactions that prevent this. And then we realized that at some point, roughly eight, 10,000 years ago, in our evolution, we have managed to close a positive feedback cycle between population, knowledge production, and energy use. And that engine has been running ever since, sometimes faster than others, but generally accelerating. And so that then allowed us to bring all of the experience that, that Jeffrey and others had with those scaling laws and the growth equations and 
also identify the difference that we, that characterizes the Anthropocene with the associated technosphere. And that is namely that we took out as part of our cultural and knowledge evolution, a lot of the regulatory feedbacks that were originally in the system. And that puts us on that trajectory towards collapse that Jeffrey was talking about. Jeff, do you want to... Yes, let me just add, yes, I think uh, Manfred has articulated very well thinking. I think one of the, I think in terms of the development of our ideas, I think formulating was already in the air kind of thing. And it was certainly in some of our implicit, at least, in some of our previous work on cities. But really, I think one of the, the big leaps conceptually was in fact this idea of the extended individual, that is that the individual, all the baggage you carry with you, because you carry with you not just the stuff we can see in the picture there, your microphone and headphones and your guitar on the wall and the split air conditioner on the road, and all, but you carry I mean, your refrigerator and your car and the roads and the airplanes. You carry all that with you too, actually. That is you. And as Mumford says, if the, that's what is why a citizen of New York is actually different in some ways from a citizen in Santa Fe and so forth. So that's crucial. And associated with that is also the idea in terms of thinking about metabolism and metabolic rate that, that the, the analog to your individual metabolic rate, your biological metabolic rate, 2,000 food calories you eat a day to stay alive, you actually are being supplied by 11,000 watts, which is some humongous amount of calories per day as your social metabolic rate. There's some analog to that. And that's the thing that's driving the system is your, so to speak, social metabolic rate. So there's, it's quite analogous to thinking about the the growth and life history of an organism in many ways. The new thing is, just to re-emphasize what we've already said, the this extraordinary event or sequence of events of our discovery or invention or evolution of language, the fact that we could start to communicate with each other, and the discovery of economies of scale that by working together, therefore exchanging information, we can accomplish more than each of us working individually. And then couple that with the evolution of agriculture, becoming sedentary sedentary organisms, forming communities. That was the beginning, beginning about 10,000 years ago. And in many ways, that is the beginning of the technosphere, because I think that's where all the things that we associate with technology as primitive as it might have been, all the way up to the kind of sophisticated things we do today, really began in, in earnest. And we've been on this extraordinary trajectory ever since. And we've, and as emphasized by Manfred, and we began to separate ourselves from the rest of the biosphere because up to that point, anything you measured in terms of these scaling laws about us, we fit to where we should be for the kind of mammal, the size we are. Now we no longer do. We're completely separated. And we've discarded those constraints. We're, we're unhindered. And that's been marvelous in terms of being able to do the kinds of things we're doing at this very moment. But it has 
these dire consequences and that those dire consequences are very threatening. And one of the other consequences that we haven't really mentioned up to now, and that is that is associated with it and doesn't get enough exposure, I think, is that this positive feedback in social dynamics and social networks that drives this at a sort of fundamental level also gives rise to the increasing pace of life. That is, everything about life is inextricably been speeding up in a systematic way, including the rate at which we innovate and the rate at which we have to innovate. And that goes a little bit to your question about this question, is the technosphere, therefore the amount of innovation that's going on, if you like, have its own independent dynamic? And I think the answer is yes and no. I hate to put it that way. Because it, after all, does come from us. It is us. And it comes from us interacting and doing the kinds of things where we've institutionalized that positive feedback in our universities and our research labs and our whole structure of society institutionalizes that positive feedback. And, and that positive feedback is the, is the source of the entire technosphere. So in the sense that the technosphere has its own dynamic is actually a statement that all of that social interaction, that positive feedback continually reinforcing itself in social interactions is an inevitable consequence presumably of the discovery of language. And they go along hand in glove. And so if we magically could all stop talking and not communicate, the technosphere would stop. It doesn't have a, that's an obvious statement. It can't go on its own. In the same way, by the way, this has got nothing to do with anything. AI could not go on if we stopped. I'm so glad you led me right up to the doorstep of this question <laughs> because there is this anxiety that Monfred, I've heard you speak to in, in some of your talks about the question of the autonomy of the technosphere from the biosphere. And if you really believe, have as much curiosity as I do as a kind of like cultural <laughs> anthropologist about but Timnit Gebru and I'm going to botch these names, Emil Torres, the, these two philosophers yeah. that have coined this term Tescreol, the transhumanism, extropianism, this long list of cosmism, long-termism, et cetera, that there is this, it strikes me, hold on, let me back up. So something you said, Manfred, about, actually, both of you said this, pointed to the successes of civilization leading to the interruption of negative feedbacks in the biosphere that prevented what the way, like outcome in which so many people today talk about humankind as an invasive species on our own planet, or they talk about humans as a, a cancer. And while I'm not willing to endorse the sort of antinatal conclusions of looking at things in that way, there, there are good, there's some sound reasoning behind the analogy, right? There is this issue that I think I saw it was John Pepper from the National Cancer Center that came and gave a talk at SFI a few years ago about energy utilization and drew that kind of connection with the discovery of fossil fuels and so on in his talk. And yeah, that it's a disruption of the checks and balances, right? It's like the 
also equivalent to the proliferation of executive orders in American politics, upsetting legislation and judicial branch agency in this sort of trinity of, of things that hold each other in check. And so it's like this, the anxiety around the machines taking off and just destroying us all or leaving us in the dust to go live their own independent transcendent thing seems to me, I don't know, this is more of a philosophical question maybe, but I'd love to hear you anchor it scientifically, seems rooted in a pathological overemphasis on individuality at a particular layer that shows up in so many of the more extreme modernist kinds of thinking, like Ayn Rand's objectivism, how she can enter the acknowledgments of a book. She can say, no one helped me. She's a refugee. Like, how do you get away with saying that? Like, how do you, how is it you think that? And yet it makes sense if you understand that that kind of thinking is adaptive to and emerges from within a kind of information processing ecosystem. And that this is one of those instances where, just to give a nod to some of the folks that work with you at ASU, Manfred, I heard a talk at the Center for Science and Imagination at ASU, who had Jeff Vandermeer, Caitlin Smith, and Merlin Sheldrake on for a conversation about the, the sort of implications of mycological research on culture and on the way that we understand the self in the 21st century. And the term they kept coming back to is networked and porous selves. This accelerating innovation flywheel that we're on right now is one that is making us more transparent to or porous to to one another. And it's changing the way, like you've already made clear about the extended phenotype of a person this extended kind of colonial selfhood that each of us partake in now, that this is getting us back to something that maybe more closely approximates, at least it seems to me, a kind of pre-modern worldview of a view of participation in these systems and in relational dynamics that's maybe a little unfair here, but it strikes me as, at least on the first pass, more like an indigenous way of thinking than it does a, a continental European enlightenment way of thinking. And so I guess what I would love to hear you speak to, if if I can, is something that you, in a piece that you wrote for Salon, Manfred, brought up the reintroduction of negative feedback into socioeconomic technical systems, not radical population control, you say, or war, but in the form of norms, values, and regulations as on excess greenhouse gas emissions. I had a similar conversation with Tim Kohler and Martin Sheffer on Complexity Podcast back in 2020, where they were trying to look at the work that had been done to rapidly change people's thinking around smoking in public. And they were looking at that as a case study that was maybe hopeful here. But it strikes me that there is this weird, viral, proliferating, extropian kind of religion that we're still at the wheel, that we're only becoming more agentic, that by merging with the advanced computational technologies in some kind of science fictional way, 
that we will transcend all of this stuff. And I don't know. I don't know. I just, I guess I would love to hear you speak to bringing rules back into the casino or like limiting the rate which a cancerous cell can requisition resources of salary caps or growth caps or rate limiting communications processes. Or the last thing I'll say about it is that I was just listening to this author, Dror Poleg, on Jim O'Shaughnessy's podcast talk about the future of work and talking about how as the economy scales and more and more becomes automated, fewer and fewer people will be responsible for a larger and larger fraction of the production. And that just seems to be, in a way, just extrapolating historical trends into the future. But we see this in anthills too, right? Really big ones, fewer ants are doing anything at a time. And yet, I don't know, is that actually a desirable future, a future? I don't know. That's I've thrown entirely too much at you, but I'd love to hear you take what of that you want and riff on that. You teased us both with AI and that the machines will take over. And I just am very relaxed about this by pointing out <laughs> what I said before about the energy transition and Olivia Judson's work, that they're all nested and dependent on each other. If we would believe our sort of pure sense of self, and that is just us, and we would really practice that to the extent we would all be dead because we can't digest anything without the 10 times more microbial cell in our gut. So that's the dependency. And so if you begin to understand that as a consequence of co-evolutionary history, then I want to know what pure modernist machine wants to take over and say we can live without the supporting humans in that sense. So it's always a ridiculously silly discussion. Reminds me on a quote that at his late age, the cantankerous Conrad Lawrence once said about humans, and he said, to believe pure nonsense is a privilege of humans. <laughs> Because no animal could do that, it would be a dead animal. So we have to create it niches. And you see this now with political polarization and all those echo chambers and social media, where you can get away with believing pure nonsense and acting on it because we have a way too nice society. I always said it would be a very straightforward way. You just make, since we are basically back in some medieval times in this country, we might as well go to medieval practice and everybody who denies reality, we would take up on the roof of a building. And so since you don't believe in science, jump and we will see whether gravity wins and we'll take care of the problem immediately. But anyway, so that's cynical aside, but to, to your point, that what is actually happening in those emerging systems is and what would be future dynamical equilibrium, we don't know. And I think we have to also be honest about that biological systems or ecological systems, they are not that much better. They are equally stupid as we are, so quote unquote, because everybody in there also has this intrinsic growth dynamic and they are not all harmonious. It's just as the timescale for finding a dynamical balance, so to speak, appropriate for the system. And so we are going back to what Jeffrey started out very early. One of the consequences of what we studied is this great acceleration of life. And that is really the problem because that means that the time frame in finding an appropriate sort of 
confused but somewhat dynamically stable equilibrium gets shorter and shorter. And so that is where the challenge are. So we very quickly moved from a world of isolated tribes connected with some trade routes to a more and more integrated globalized world of over 8 billion. And while we have certain institutions that we begin to understand how they culturally emerge that regulate smaller groups, we don't have a clue how to socially regulate 8 billion people. But we got there very quickly. And what we didn't build up, and there was not enough time for that to naturally, in a way, emerge, are the appropriate regulatory structures that would allow those people to meaningfully interact with less friction and somewhat more peaceful tendencies. So that's the problem. It's the problem at the core of what Jeffrey said, acceleration. Yeah, let me just build on that a little bit, because one of the things that is so remarkable is that this has all happened, as we've emphasized, in at best 10,000 years. In fact, most of it's happened quite recently, of course. And indeed, I was thinking earlier, in fact, it just reminds me of it, there's now over 8 billion people on the planet. When I was born, which is not that long ago, I feel I'm old, but it's, it's over 80 years ago, there were only 2 billion. That is, what is extraordinary is that we have adapted and incorporated these 6 billion people in such an incredibly short period of time. We, In fact, it speaks extraordinarily about the ease with which we have been able to adapt. And so here's the problem. 10,000 years ago, we made this transition, this beginning transition. And now we're going through multiple transitions, which we've put in terms of the technosphere. Our biology is exactly the same. In fact, our brain is essentially exactly the same. You have the same brain that you did when you were hunting and gathering, and, uh, sitting around in those little tribes and so on, and, and a pace of life that was, on today's scale, very relaxed. You may have had greater anxieties about different things, but it was basically the same organism. And yet, the pace of life has just zoomed since then. And socioeconomic life has increased faster than exponentially, whereas biological life has basically stayed invariant in the same. And that brings up another sort of technical, even conceptual question. At what point, independent of any of this, are we simply not able to adapt fast enough? And I feel that's what we're approaching. I mean, that's one of the significant problems that we're approaching. And so I also want to go back, thinking about your earlier question, which is related to this change. And you introduced it by trying to ask whether cyanobacteria producing oxygen, polluting the earth with oxygen, is that actually much different than a bunch of human beings producing all this junk in the air now? That's sort of the essence of your question. And I think the fundamental difference is that the great change that took place during the Industrial Revolution, is the Industrial Revolution, was, of course, the discovery and exploitation of fossil fuels. And the change that has taken place and that distinguishes us from those that produced oxygen and polluted the planet in what we now think of as a healthy way uh, a long time ago, the difference is 
that we're burning up the planet. Those, everything up to 200 years ago, operated from the energy of the sun. And we were a totally open system. We operated totally from that. Beginning 200 years ago, we started burning energy that is already stored, the classic stored energy problem. And we're simply burning the planet. And that is categorically, thermodynamically, and conceptually quite different than anything that's come behind us. And in some ways is the most fundamental law and constraint that we've broken. And that's one reason I, and presumably many others, so passionate about getting back to a state where we're dependent upon the external energy source rather than continually burning the planet. And having one of the obvious things that, of course, many of us are proponents of is, in fact, getting, quote, renewable energy sources to return, which is basically a return to our biological origins and deriving source from the sun directly rather than burning the stuff that's been stored here. So that's just one of the biggest examples of where we've broken the law, and now the time is to restore that law. Do I have time for one more quick question with you guys to tie a bow on this? I have to run in about seven or eight minutes. Okay, that's plenty. So I guess this all really comes down to, Jeffrey, when I first had you on Complexity Podcast, and so many times I've heard you speak, the whole thing ends with, but what are we going to do about it? And you've given us a taste of might be done. I really want to bring this question into acute focus. And Manfred just ripped a quote directly out of one of your talks here, because I thought you really, you said this so parsimoniously. The consequences of the Anthropocene are the product of innovations. And yet somehow we think the way out is through even more innovation. This, you say euphemistically, is a predicament. Innovation has to be looked at critically. One of the interesting things in the history of life is the oppression of innovation. And of course, this is just me restating the the last question I asked the two of you, but there is such a powerful root in contemporary thinking toward the agency and the liberty of the individual or a trust in the dynamics, the fairness of free markets and these kinds of things. And yet here we are where your thinking brings us directly to the doorstep of the question about where do we need to reinstate oppression in order to make this thing work? I'd love to know what your closing thoughts are on how we can continue to benefit from the gains of progress, of social progress, technological progress, while mitigating not only the the externalities we're producing at any given time, but like getting ourselves out of this cycle that sooner or later we can mathematically guarantee is going to come back and bite us if it's not biting us already. Like that we'll get to a point where even with the assistance of AI, we're having to make decisions faster than the cognitive layer of the Anthropocene can handle. Like where do we put the pressure on Hmm. this thing to bring things back into balance? That is, I think you ended with what might be the subject of a subsequent conversation because we can almost really put a few points on the map here. 
I think the important thing is that we have, and this is historically very relatively recent, that celebration of, let's say, individuality and innovation as a value in and of itself is historically not very old. If you look into biological systems, they have very elaborate mechanisms to suppress innovation. If you simply look at the number of mutations that we carry that do exactly nothing, because there are layered systems in an organism or in a cell that do not allow that genetic innovation to be expressed in a certain way because it might potentially be very harmful, then you already begin to see that this is something that we should also consider. And if you think about, if you look at about the evolution of constitutions or legal systems, something that David and others SFI are looking at too, then you see that the main structure of those documents is to strive a balance between freedom and obligations. Uh, we have forgotten the obligations part in that sense. So it's not that this is heard of and unknown. It's just that I would say over the last several decades, we have entered in the West primarily, but now being copied at other places, an interesting ideological trajectory that sort of forgets half of that equation. And it's not that we have to completely reinvent something from scratch. It's that was always be part of a cultural tradition that thought about what is just and what is a good life and all those things. And there were always those balance arguments. Go back to the Hippocratics, it's still the only reasonable definition of health that we have. It's basically some sort of balance. And whatever that then means in concrete terms remains to be seen. But I think that would be an interesting subject for a follow-up discussion. Can I build on that a little bit? Yeah, take us on. I I agree with everything Manfred said, but I want to add slightly maybe a radical view about what might get us out of this. And that is that the thing that's the problem, at least, that we seem to be facing is that we have this kind of inevitability that, as I, just to repeat again, this dynamic that's led to our success leads to this extraordinary super exponential growth that leads to this singularities. And to avoid that singularity, we have to make a paradigm shift, a major innovation. And that's what we've been doing. And the problem is that would be great. We've done it and we will hopefully continue to do it. But the real issue is we have to do it faster. And that's the thing we can't keep up with. So eventually the system, if you just take it at face value, is doomed to collapse unless you can intervene in that dynamic. So that's first point. And Manfred has brought up one this possibility that one of the reasons for this is that we've been breaking the law a little bit relative to our biology, relative to our biology. Now, I want to bring a slightly different take on it, is the when you think of the word innovation these days, the last 20, 30 years, you immediately think innovation means technology. It's almost become synonymous with technology. And innovation means another one of these. We just got a bloody number 15 has just come out yesterday to drive us nuts. And it just continues and it'll go faster and faster. And But of course, an innovation is much more than that. An innovation, of course, is ideas, but you have social and cultural innovation and paradigm shifts. Many of those in the past have happened 
because of the, the role of leadership and individuals. And one of the problems we have today is we don't see that. We don't have individuals or even small collectives of individuals who have enough charisma and presence to change our way of thinking, because that's fundamentally what we have to do. We have to return to a different state or go into a new state where instead of always thinking individually, and what, how much more can I get? The idea of greed, with both positive and negative, being a driving force in the system, to seeing things as much more as not just giving, but, but not just taking, but giving, not just, but also being conscious of the collective, of, for want of a better phrase, love thy neighbor. And this, of course, has been done in the past by the role of individuals. We just met Jesus Christ, Muhammad, Martin Luther King, and so on. They played these major sort of crystallizing roles of tapping in to the, this positive feature of human beings to change the way in which they relate to each other and they relate to their neighbors and to the collective as a whole. And none of them have lasted very long in terms of <laughs> what was originally supposed to be that dynamic. But nevertheless, they've had profound effects. And we need something like that. Today, the kind of leadership that we have is exactly the opposite. It tends to be authoritarian in nature. It tends to emphasize individuality, the role of the individual. More is better. It believes in fake news. It doesn't tell truth. It doesn't even believe in science and the culture which is developing by individuals that have arisen for good reason in trying to attack these problems by providing extraordinarily simplistic answers, which are very much a throwback. And so what we need now is really a sort of some modern version of one of those charismatic people that can somehow crystallize the, I sound uh, very 60s, 70s here, the good, crystallize the good, make love, not war, a kind of image that, because we all know each individual has this spectrum. Each of us has a murderer inside of us. Each of us has a Jesus Christ inside of us. And it's the, it's, it sounds medieval, the battle between good and evil taking place, not just in the individual, but among the collective. So I'm going way outside my, even my comfort zone, but certainly by any expertise. But the only way I can see out of this is that somehow we need some mechanism, which usually has been an individual to galvanize the forces of good to overcome the forces of evil, so to speak. And that is the paradigm shift and the innovation with which we can start to readdress these problems. Thank you for taking it there, even though, <laughs> and perhaps especially because it wasn't a place that we could have ever gotten away with taking it on complexity. I think my biggest yes. area of interest has always been, what are the metaphysical implications yeah. of complexity? So that's it. I mean, How I'm, does this change? Yes, I'm willing to step out of my role as a scientist. I realize I, it's not my expertise, but this is just me as an individual. This is not science. This is not what science particularly tells you one way or the other. Science does tell you that if you don't do something, you're in deep blue. <laughs> Fair. Thank you both so much for this. Mm. 
Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is a listener-supported podcast. If you value these conversations, please do what you can to get them out into the world. Get creative. I don't care. Whatever shape it takes. Substack and Patreon supporters above $5. Send me your addresses because I just got a bunch of awesome new stickers printed. I want to mail you one. Community calls will be back soon, and I am about to drop my science and philosophy of Jurassic Park lectures from NeuroLearning here soon. So if you haven't yet already, please subscribe, rate, and review, and have a wonderful aeon.